Hey, this is Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, and you are watching Life Minute TV. He's a metal mogul, entrepreneurial genius, family man, and cancer survivor. Nearly 40 years ago, Dave Mustaine founded Megadeth after leaving Metallica as their original lead guitarist, where he co-wrote much of their early hits. Since then, he's been unleashing his own precise and intense brand of thrash metal upon the world. More than 50 million albums sold and five consecutive platinum albums later, Mustaine has just released Megadeth's 16th studio album, The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead. And it's mega good, filled with intense riffs, his killer guitar solos, poignant lyricism, and that crystal clear, you know it when you hear it, Mustaine snarl. That's as powerful as ever, even through a recent battle with throat cancer. Three years cancer-free, Mustaine is persevering and proving his mettle over and over again. Currently on tour with Five Finger Death Punch, he sat down with us virtually to tell us all about the new album, his family legacy, and his new lease on life. This is a Life Minute with the one and only Dave Mustaine. Hi, how are Hi. you? I'm wonderful, how are you? You look great. Thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. So congratulations on the new album and congratulations Thanks. on your health. I'm so glad you're okay. Thanks. And you look amazing. Tell us about the album. Well, we we uh, were working on on these songs on and off for, for a long period of time. Uh, some of the riffs had been around for many many years. Some of them were written on the spot in the studio. And my style of writing is when I have a lick or a riff or a chord progression that I like, I'll, I'll try and write it down or tape it or call my voicemail or something. You know that life insurance commercial where the guy's talking in the middle of the night to the dude in the slacks? Yeah, life insurance. Who are you talking to? The wife does that. I've gotten that line from my wife a couple of times because I would get up in the middle of the night and I, I, I'd have a dream and I'd tell the dream into my voicemail because I didn't want to get my lazy bones out of bed and try and find paper and a pen. So, um, yeah, whatever um, uh, an idea comes up, either I just leave it alone and, and don't ever touch it again or uh, I'll record it. So you said for the first time in a long time, everything that you needed to record this album was in the right place. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, it came, <laughs> there was some considerable birth pangs during this one with the, uh, uh, the pandemic and the, my uh, walk through the medical system uh, and cancer and all that. Um, it, it was uh, really revealing too. I did a lot of introspection and, and I think I've got a better outlook on you know what my role in life is and and uh, better outlook towards people um you know because you never really know who's the person that's the nurse or the doctor who's going to come in and save your skin you know and the last thing i would want to be doing because we did this before we were uh, something like this happened we were in india and we were going up an elevator and we had this tour manager it was really a nasty person we didn't keep him very long and this Indian gentleman had gotten into the elevator and um, this guy was really rude to him, right? And, and uh, it made me very, very awkwardly uncomfortable. 
And we get up to the customs place and guess who's working the window he has to go to. <laughs> so you, you always see the same people on the way up that you see on the way down. So How did it all come together? Well, the beginning of the recording process for this album, when uh, we we'd hired Dirk Verbuelen, our new drummer, he came in as a session kind of a guy uh, when we were on tour with Dystopia because we'd uh, made a change with our drummer before uh, Chris was playing with us, and and I didn't know, uh, and and it didn't seem clear to any of us what Chris Adler's intentions were. And um, I thought he was going back to Lamb of God as it is, as it was. He's not in either band now, Megadeth nor Lamb of God. And, and um, he had mentioned when he did go back to Lamb of God that we should try a guy named Dirk. And I met Dirk and he was a very, very humble, unassuming, uh, soft-spoken Belgianer. And I didn't know what to think, and I'd never heard his band before, never heard the name of the band either. So uh, when he first got on the drums, I just, my jaw was dropped, and I was, I gasped. I didn't know what to think, and, and I thought, oh my God, this guy is unlike any of the drummers we've had in the last 20 years. This guy sounds like Gar. Gar was the drummer that I cut my teeth on in, in Megadeth, and I loved his playing style a lot because it really lined up with my jazz influences. Although I'm not a jazz guy, my twisted thinking when it comes to guitar approach uh, it is very jazzy. And the producer, um, your old producer that you worked with, tell us about that. You said that um, he really knows what a Megadeth record should sound like what should a megadeth record sound like well i think <laughs> we went through a couple times in the latter part of the 90s and early part of the new millennium uh, with the pressure of the music uh, business and eating itself you know there were no more rock stations and rock stations nowadays they don't really play rock they play classic rock and and some of them are cool enough to say they're classic rock stations but you know you don't you know on real rock stations man you're still hearing stuff like eddie money and tom petty and to me those guys are rock and roll they're, they're not heavy metal at all if i you know on my radio station I, I would never play either one of them not because they're not good they're just not metal or, or even hard rock to me you know um, they're rock and roll. You know, I, I, going back to your initial question about, um, you know, the, the players and stuff, how that all came about. When, when Dirk came in, going into the studio, it became so easy to put the pieces together because Chris Rakestraw is the person you're talking about, the producer. Very interesting name. He's got like 30 different variations of his last name. Rake, Raker, the old Rake, all these goofy names. and whatever, uh, I discovered him on the dystopia sessions and he was a remarkable engineer. And, you know, I had read the book, uh, I think it was Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And he was talking about the ordeal when Henry Ford had gone in to have his, uh, his uh, empire taken from him. I think it was that book. And the opposing attorneys had said, Mr. Ford, you have an elementary school education. How could you possibly run this? company i'm paraphrasing and he said young man on my counter on my desk there's a black box with red buttons i can push any button and get any answer to any question i possibly could ask 
why would I waste all that space with useless information I don't need? And I thought, damn straight, Henry. <laughs> you know, and, and I've surrounded myself with our, our business. We have a brain trust when it comes down time to make decisions. You know, there's a misnomer that there were two people that founded Megadeth. I was the founder. I was the only one in the beginning. There was a bass player before um, the person who just was, uh, we just left. Um, and uh, so, so it's been my vision. You know, when I got kicked out of Metallica, I got kicked out of Metallica, and no one else was with me on the bus coming home. So, um, it, it's been a learning process. And um, Chris knows what a, I think a Megadeth record should sound like because it's not not like he was. You know, the last producer we used before Chris was a person named Johnny uh, Carcassian. He goes by Johnny K. Johnny K is a, a really good producer. So Johnny did Disturbed and, and he'd done Stained and stuff like that. Great producer, but not really a, a thrash metal guy, right? And and before that, we had uh, Andy Sneap, who was kind of a thrash metal guy, and, but he lived all the way over in England, so it was difficult to do that. And, and before him, you know, we would we, we would have someone that the record company would really feel strongly about, and we would try them, and and it, it would be the right you know the right person for somebody, but just not us. And and when I met Chris, Chris had done work with Danzig, which was really great, and I thought that. Uh, you know, I mean, Danzig is not uh, um, our type of uh, of a band, but I, I love the music. You know, that, that song, Mother, I can't tell you how many times I've walked around and said, Mother, <laughs> just that one word, just to be goofy. But uh, yeah, so meeting him, he was really a, a great addition to our team. So what does a, a Megadeth record stand, sound like? Okay, uh, well, sonically, it, it, I think it's got a very, um, if I was going to tell someone who's never heard us before, it, it's a very powerful sounding band. Um, it's twin guitar attack, and we use a very English uh, amplified sound that uh, comes from using Marshall amplification. Uh, Jim Marshall is no longer with us, but he was called the, the father of loud and um, I, I uh, have been using Marshall almost every day of my career. There was a period when I couldn't afford him in the very beginning. And, and uh, it was a joyous day once I became a Marshall family person. And the drumming is uh, very syncopated with the polyrhythms that they use. It's very, very tribal sometimes because it is a jazz approach to the drums. And we like to use a double bass, uh, double kick drum approach. A lot of drummers think they can do a double bass performance with a single drum with double pedals. They can, but it doesn't, you know, it's the same sounding kick drum with twin attack on it. So there's no difference when you have two kick drums and they're tuned a little different because inevitably they invariably will be tuned different if, you're, if you've got a really great drum tech. So the two going back and forth is going to go da 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 instead of da 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 and and when you have the two notes that are the same like that in rapid fire succession it starts to sound like a drum machine which is the bane of all drummers existence they hate drum machines because it's it, the drum machines are perfect and they're not and uh, I I have played with some great drummers uh, Vinnie Caliuto who played with the Mothers of Invention and and uh, um, he he was by far one of the, one of the most incredible drummers I've I've played with. Again, Chris Adler was great. Nick Menza was great. Gar was my favorite. 
And um, the, the bass approach, uh, last but not least, is is very much like a lead guitar attack. And I was explaining to James Lomenzo, our bassist, when he first came in the band, that you're going to be having to reevaluate your approach uh, to guitar playing and to bass playing because I want you to play in unison with me, which uh, for most bass players, they do something that's similar, a little, little dummy down because the strings are bigger and they're a little farther apart the notes and it's a little harder to wrangle that bass neck around. But if you have the right player and he's got the right setup and he's got the right attitude, I, I, I don't think there's anything that they can't do. And uh, you find the right guy. I've been really fortunate. I found the right guy. And, and you know, there's only been a couple of times where I've had anybody that was playing with me that was a temporary situation. Mike Albert was kind enough to sit in for us while Chris Pollan was doing time. And, and <laughs> Chris had gotten arrested and we were going on tour and, and we went to go pick him up. And, and we were in the neighborhood where he lived. And we pull up and we go, where's Chris? What? <laughs> so we had to go over to this guy named Mike Albert, and he played with uh, Captain Beefheart, of all people. Another really strange band. I would never have thought I'd have a guy from Captain Beefheart playing in my band, because I don't even know what Captain Beefheart is or was at the time. So yeah, that's the Megadeth sound. It's very unique. It's English-oriented. It's got a lot of the British invasion with the songwriting, a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal with the guitar approach. And of course, my singing, I'm not a, I'm not a trained singer, so I've had to learn on the fly. And, and uh, that's probably the, the thing I'm most conscientious of because, you know, I, I, I grew up listening to great singers and some singers that were really awful. So I, I know it can be done, but uh, I, I wanted to be someone that could really sing and, and have people go, wow, what a great singer, you know, and, and instead of, you know, hello, me. <laughs> hello, me. Meet the real me. Good and probably. Hey, I like that. <laughs> it's popular. Um, I made it work for me, you know. I guess the thing is, make what God gave you work, you know. You know what? Your voice is amazing. It still sounds amazing. And you can always hear every word you're saying. That's what I always loved about you. No reason left for living, living all alone. And speaking of that, what do you want people to take away when they listen to your music? Well, in the beginning, I was really uh, hopeful that uh, a lot of our fans would get uh, curious about the things I'm talking about and that they would find out for themselves. I love self-discovery. Growing up, uh, I could not wait to get my hands on the Anarchist Cookbook or the Pale Rider because they were books that were banned. And uh, I had a voracious, uh, I, I still have a pretty good appetite for reading, but because uh, the radiation did a number on my, my head, and my neck, um, you know, there's been so much damage to my, you know, you put your head into a, a, a radiation uh, uh, situation like I was in, um, you know, they, they were really, really, really aggressive uh, because they, they wanted to go in uh, <clears throat> to uh, address the tumor. The tumor was on, on my left side and usually what happens is the uh, you know, cattywampus, whatever, uh, you know, the opposite side of the uh, lymph node is the one who will take the brunt of the work because of the tumor. And I had two lymph nodes over here that were uh, 
damaged because of the tumor up here. And fortunately, I caught it early enough, and thank God, um, I've uh, got a job that um, provides uh, coverage for me so I could go in there. You know, it was difficult. I had two really bad days out of the whole time. It was only two bad days. It wasn't even a whole day. It was a moment that just kind of lasted for a little bit. Um, I consider a bad day the day that I, I was you know, throwing up and I couldn't stop. And it was only two times out of the whole treatment that, that I was like, I mean, I guess a lot of, you know, my, my past, the behavior that I had, you know, waking up hungover or, or sick or whatever, you know, you kind of, you kind of get used to, um, you know, traveling a lot and putting your body through, you know, the paces. So I, I imagine that if I had, had not been the person that I am traveling and touring and, and doing all the things that were, you know, whether good or detrimental to my health, conditioning me for this, I probably wouldn't have had such a successful outcome. You know, we're looking at almost three years now that I've been cancer free. And a lot of people were joking around in the beginning, and I, I you know, I, I kind of you know, chortled a little bit, I guess you would call it, when they uh, said, you know, well, I heard you got cancer, and I felt sorry for cancer, and I thought, well, that, that's, that's cool and all that, but it's kind of serious, you know. Um, you know, I, I'd heard that Eddie got cancer on his tongue and they had to cut part of his tongue off. I heard that Bruce uh, got cancer. You know, before that, the only other person I knew got this was Michael Douglas. And, and um, you know, I, I, I haven't heard him speak since he had the operation. And, and I don't know if they took any flesh off of his tongue. Fortunately, they didn't have to do that. They just nuked the hell out of me. But it was, it was, it was challenging. I don't know how you still recorded I don't know how you did that, and you didn't miss anything. I had to. I'm in Megadeth. We don't quit for nothing. <laughs> it's amazing to me. It's amazing. And it sounds amazing, too. Jeez. God bless you. Amazing. you. I'm so glad you're all right. Um, so I can imagine this album is more meaningful than ever. It was really a joyous occasion when we wrapped this up, because sometimes she'll do something, and you'll keep thinking, does this... You know, does this make me look fat? You know, this kind of stuff, or, or, or you know, um, you know, you have somebody over for dinner, and you're just thinking, God, I hope they can't tell this is from Whole Foods, you know, or something like that. Um, just just that, that people would discover that you're not who you say you are, and and I I keep thinking one day I'm going to wake up and I'm still going to be that little kid, and this is all has been a dream, and I'll be in the horrible life that I was living as a child, but. You know, something happened in, inside of me where I, I just said enough at one point. I was, you know, I was living with my mom at the time and we had come to uh, a fork in the road. She was a Jehovah's Witness and, and she had basically said I had to make a decision. So I made the toughest decision in my life at 15 years old. I said, I'm walking away from you and I'm going to live my life on my own as a child. And, and um, you know, you, you got to have some, some brass to do stuff like that. Um, there weren't a lot of opportunities for me as a 15-year-old child to feed or take care of myself. And, you know, the majority of people in that situation get stuck in trafficking or, or drug dealing. And I figured, you know, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, I'll take the drugs. And that's kind of what I did for a while until, you know, I, I got uh, married and, and um started to uh, see the joys of being married and, and 
how happy a person can be when they find that 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 person. I, you know, I mean, 30 years later, we've had our ups and downs, but I never failed to send flowers on anniversaries and birthdays. And you know, I, I try and remember to always say I love you before we go to bed. And sometimes that doesn't happen because I'll go to sleep early. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it's been one of those things where I found my special person. And then when I became a parent, it was terrifying for my wife and I, I thought fuck yeah man I'm ready for this challenge you know because I wanted I wanted a little boy really bad and because you know my life was so awful growing up uh, I wanted to make up to myself um, and learn how to you know be a dad at the same time because you know I didn't have the paradigm you know I had male role models who were surrogate parents and they you know they weren't uh, really interested in investing time with me because they had their own kids to deal with it was my brother-in-laws and you know it's a little trippy when you have a guy that's not your flesh and blood meeting out discipline at the end of the belt it's a little little freaky so that 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 was a little weird but when parenthood came along I was I was stoked Pam had postpartum blues for the first couple of weeks and and man i was wrapped up i had towels over my shoulder and barf running down my back and from my front and and i was just i was i was stoked i was happy i had my son and we were starting our family and then the day electra came you know i got i got to cut justice's cord and i full-on delivered electra so um we stopped there because i wasn't going to carry the next one did, were you in a hospital with her? When we delivered the baby, yes. Yeah. She came to full term, and you know, every once in a while, when she gets mad, she'll bring up the circumstances. But I think so. <laughs> yes, uh, she's kind of forgotten that she was full term. David Letterman was having his birthday, and he wanted us to play at his birthday party. So uh, I said, I'm sorry, my wife's ready to pop right now. Um, you know, she's coming full term in a couple of days. And they said, well, she comes full term before the birthday party. So if you have the baby, um, then come out. And I said, okay. And we talked to the nurse and the nurse said, you know, the baby's full term. If you want it, uh, you can have the baby. She's not gonna get any more done being in there. So uh, um, they induced labor and Electra came and I, I delivered her and, and uh, you know, we, we're really close. Both kids are different and both kids have a different relationship with each parent. And I think that um, I, I was uh, not as worried as I think the people around us about how our kids were going to turn out because, you know, they were judging us by our outsides, not by our insides. And, and nobody knew what kind of a mom Pam was going to be. She turned out to be a super mom. She's just like, uh, a warrior mom and and uh, you know uh, the hardest thing for me to do is is to not get in her way when she's she's on a, on a mission you know um, we make a great team and and uh, I think a lot of people said when I got married our music was gonna get wimpy and I and I, I said my wife's a kickboxer she could probably kick your ass what are you talking about and Electra's a musician as well yet do you give her advice I was lost and afraid Uh, no, she doesn't want my advice. She wants to be very much an independent person. She's very headstrong, just like Justice's. Um, you know, Justice's in the music business too. Both kids have dabbled in in uh, music. Uh, Electra is uh, a sommelier, and uh, she's the vice president of our our House of Mustaine Wine Company. 
her and Pam are running that and, and uh, Justice is um, helping run uh, our, our uh, music industry here. It's a giant business. And he also uh, is a manager and manages um, uh, over with uh, CTK management. So we're an industry family. And I think the beauty about all this is we've got uh, opportunity that's going to leave a legacy for um, not only my kids now from what I've done, but what the work we're doing together for their children and so on, because the vine is is life. And uh, we've come so close together with this whole venture. You know, the music did the heavy lifting and, and it made it all possible. And now we get to travel around the world and celebrate life with fans. And, and I, I'm hoping that the end of my life is going to be more philanthropic, you know, helping fans learn how to how to get their music out, how, how to uh, deal with some of the difficult questions that we face as young musicians or young newlyweds or, or parents and stuff like that. You know, I've been doing it successfully for a long time. I, I've made a lot of mistakes, so I can tell you what to do and what not to do. And uh, I think me being a best-selling author with my first and second books, um, it, it shows that um, there's, something, there's something there. I'm not your average house cat. Would you say that's part of where, you know, what drives you creatively? Creatively, I don't think that was the drive. The uh, the drive for me creatively is I just plain like doing stuff other people can't do. Um, I, I like the fact that, that uh, and I know this is going to sound like such an assholeism, but I, I just, you know, it's like Michael Jordan said, at the end of the day, I know I'm better than you. And um, I don't mean to say that about somebody with their self-worth in the eyes of our, our higher power, whatever you choose to call that, right? Uh, some people call him God, some people call him dude, you know, whatever, the big Lebowski, whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what, whatever you get that, that inspiration from. Did you always know you wanted to be a musician? Not until my sister started playing piano and, and I realized that horrible noise coming from that poor wooden box was her playing piano. What about guitar? Were you self-taught on the guitar? Yes, I was. She was playing piano and, and um, I hadn't seen dueling banjos yet. So I was kind of figuring that we would have our own instruments. My mom got me an acoustic guitar from Pearl One Imports of all places when I graduated from uh, one of the grades I was in in elementary school. And it wasn't very shortly after that, my sister Debbie, who's the next one older than me, I have three older sisters, she thought it was fun to beat me up, squirt vastly intensive care lotion in my hair, scratch her name on my arm with her bloody fingernails. And El kabong me with my guitar. And when my mom got home, the only thing I was concerned about was that she broke my guitar. Now, I, I uh, didn't notice that the neighbors had heard us screaming and they called the cops at the same time. So when my mom came home, she was more and more worried about the police. And, you know, it kind of shows you where our heads were at at the time. She was trying to keep peace at all costs and I was trying to be a rock star. You know, the funny thing is that if she wasn't so awful at guitar, uh, at piano, and wasn't such a, a, a dominant force in my life, I don't think I would be the person I am today. You know, and I've never paid her back. And, you know, I think that there's something with sibling rivalry. You know, you can ratchet up the energy and, and um, 
sometimes you can actually come to blows, but there's something between uh, siblings that at the end of the day, if if you really love one another, you can always you can always reconcile. And and um, the bummer for me is I have a middle sister that I just don't talk to anymore. And she's she's one of those Jehovah's Witnesses. And and um, my oldest sister just passed away. So it's like my family is slowly but surely narrowing itself down. And the idea of getting married and having kids wasn't to, uh, you know, for self-preservation or to keep the name alive. It, it, it was because I was in love. And, and, you know, when the thought of building a family came, it was totally contrary to, to being a rock star, you know. Or in most situations when people think of rock stars and families, they don't think very highly of the uh, fidelity. Um, there are there are people out there who have fallen in love and stayed true and and that are good examples for fans. They're just hard to find, you know. If you look at uh, Dave Mustaine in the early years, you know I was the eternal badass, and and if you look at me now, I'm, I'm, I think that it's kind of like when I, I learned from my sensei that the Native American chiefs, when they get too old to actually physically fight, they fight with their minds. And um, that was the song, the, the Creed on the MD45 record was about that because he had told me, and actually Sensei Benny Yukides was the man who helped me get off heroin. So I, I, I loved him and I owe him so much. And, and I, I miss him terribly. I, I try and see him every chance I get. He's out there. You're in LA, right? Uh, New Jersey. Oh, shoot. Well, how come you don't have that accent? <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. You're a beautiful person. God bless you. I wish you continued amazingness. <laughs> well, I hope to meet you when we get out there in New Jersey. Come by. Yeah, we'll when you come to New Jersey, come to our studio. We have a beautiful studio in Times Square, and we'll do it in person. I'll personally deliver you one of my bottles of wine. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Do you drink wine? Oh, yeah. What do you yeah. prefer? And beer, too. Okay. I'll bring a care package. I can't wait. Bye. Thank you. Welcome. To see more of this interview, visit our website, lifeminute.tv. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Life Minute TV.